0: Can I ask a question to you, President Ryan? What is your favorite candy? <laughs> Pina M&M's, actually. Are you serious? Frozen. I definitely recommend try freezing them. They're very good. That is a new... I, that. You know what? When I get home, there will be some in the freezer and I will let you know. Uh, Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Ryan, the president of the University of Virginia. And I'd like to welcome all of you to the final episode of our first season of Inside UVA. This podcast is a chance for me to speak with some of the amazing people that are part of the university community and to learn more about what they do and who they are. My hope is that listeners will ultimately have a better understanding of how UVA works and have a deeper appreciation of the remarkably talented and dedicated people who make up the UVA community. Today's guest truly needs no introduction, but per tradition, here goes. A 2016 Vogue magazine headline called our guest the George Clooney of March Madness. He is a former NCAA and NBA sharpshooter, coaching legend, husband, father, man of faith, and national champion. He has a 7.30 winning percentage at UVA, is a two-time AP National Coach of the Year and is someone I'm absolutely honored to call the head coach of the University of Virginia men's basketball team, the Tony Bennett. Welcome, my friend.
1: <laughs> no, I'm the
0: other Tony Bennett. Let's get that straight. <laughs> that's that's for sure. Well, I think at UVA, people would say, you're the Tony Bennett, <laughs> that's all I'll say about that. So Tony, I wonder if we could just start at the beginning. Tell me a little bit about uh, your hometown. My hometown, well,
1: you know, my father was a coach, you know, when I was born in Clintonville, Wisconsin. The Clintonville Truckers, a small town of about 4,000 people in pretty much central Wisconsin, but moved around a lot. My dad took different high school jobs and then small college job and then Green Bay. But the majority of my life was in Stevens Point, Wisconsin from first to ninth grade. And then we moved to Green Bay, Wisconsin. And then I was a high school and college player there and very fortunate to have a wonderful family. and. Maybe it's because I'm biased, but good Midwestern values and just eh, the way the way you're brought up. And maybe it was more the time frame.
0: Yeah, well, I've been thinking a lot about hometowns. I went back to my high school in Midland Park, New Jersey to give a graduation speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I realized just how much that place has shaped me. So I'm not surprised to hear you say something similar. So. You mentioned your dad. So basketball is a little bit of the family business. Um, Your dad was an amazing coach, your sister as well. And I'm curious, when did you first start playing basketball and was it always sort of assumed that that would be your sport or did you play other sports when you were growing up?
1: Yeah, I think (laughs) there's a picture when I was maybe, I don't know if I was three minutes old and my dad snuck a little basketball into my crib. So I'm laying there and there's this ball next to me and who knows what's going on. But um, you just can't help when your father is a coach growing up around the game, but I loved played football, baseball, you know, played a little bit of tennis and golf, I guess later, but uh, played three sports, but really started focusing in maybe on basketball in ninth grade, that's when I said I'm just gonna play basketball only and you know my sister was seven years older and I got good playing with the girls. My sister was one of the best players, player of the year in the state, would have probably been in the WNBA if they had it back then. And that's how I developed. She dragged me along and I play with all of her friends and
0: they were a lot better, but they weren't so dominant that I could still improve. Yeah. And then you went on and you played for your dad at Green Bay. Yeah. So what went into that decision and what was the experience like? Yeah, it was... Um, Probably my coaching
1: philosophy is shaped a lot on what I learned and playing for my dad and I, I try to make sure that the guys I recruit understand that it's the most important thing to play for a coach that sees something in you that believes you can touch greatness or be special in your role or in your area it doesn't mean everyone's going to be the all-American or the superstar but I went to play for my dad and turned other schools down because of that, and also I knew I could trust him. It was obviously built in, and my mother would have killed him if he did me wrong. So I had that as a, a backup. But I do think when people know, well, this coach and this staff, man, they they see something special in me, and and I can trust them because it's going to get hard at times, and you're going to have to, you're going to have to be critical, you're going to have to correct them, push them out of their comfort zone. There's going to be times they're going to doubt, and that's when they'll return to that. So that's why I chose to play for him and. Quite honestly, anybody who's either worked with their parents or played sports for their their parent, to me, everything's always a little exaggerated. You know, the good is great. And when it's not good, the bad can be rough. You know, it's just you
0: feel stuff a little more. I bet. Uh, you mentioned the NBA. And I'm curious, was that a goal of yours going into college? And if it was, you obviously succeeded, when i got to college it was i think it was a
1: dream it wasn't like i know and then after my freshman year i I played pretty well and i got invited to like a usa basketball event and there was a lot of these guys that were projected to be pros and i played against them and i realized i can play with these guys i don't have to back down and that mentality is that's how again i recruit i'll tell guys i want blue collar guys. I want guys that have a chip on their shoulder that they just, they want a chance at a title fight. We talk about it a lot. So, you know, that's where I started getting a taste like maybe if I keep developing, I'll have a chance. But in the back of my mind, I I saw some things and then just kept working and, you know, trusted it and it, it happened.
0: And what was it like? Did you enjoy it? Is it just a tough job, or is it? Do you still find joy when you're a professional basketball player playing the game? It's not as glamorous
1: as people think. It's a grind. It's you know my rookie year we played hundred games. You know you play eighty two regulars and preseason we made it to the Eastern Conference semifinals. I only played fifteen minutes a game roughly thirteen fifty started a few but still it's a lot on your body. That's three and a half college seasons and you're in hotel rooms. You're traveling and you know, you're trying to take care of your body and you kind of did it because you just tested yourself against the best. Played against Michael Jordan 15 times in my career and was played with Del Curry. His son, Stephen Curry was five, six years old. He'd come to practice, you would be like, oh, look at this cute little guy. You know, he shoots it pretty good, like who would have known? But there's just something in you that wants to challenge yourself against the best. That always has driven me to
0: see, can I do that? And I enjoyed that challenge a lot. And when did you decide to become a coach? And, and where did you first get your start? Yeah, I, I
1: swore it off. I was like, I, that's the last thing I want to do. I watched my father. My sister was head coach at Indiana the Big Ten, won a Big Ten uh, conference championship. She won a, one or two national championships at Division three. She was at Evansville. I watched her. Watch my dad, my uncle was a pretty well-known coach, and um, I was like, no way, I just wanna play in the NBA probably 10, 15 years, and then when I'm done, I'm either gonna retire in Hawaii on the beach and just volunteer and do some fun stuff, or you know, I'll get involved in something, but coaching, that's nuts. Playing's the best, and I've seen my dad go through this roller coaster, and um, it really wasn't until I decided, I played in the NBA for three years, and I had some injuries, so I was overseas, in New Zealand and Australia, and I couldn't really get healthy. And they said, hey, would you consider being a player coach when you're healthy play, but when you're not coach? I'm like, sure. That was where I'm like, this might be the next best thing, and I, I started enjoying it.
0: Interesting. Um, yeah. And was it the sort of thing where once you started, you knew, okay, yeah, this is for me, or was it, oh, I'll give it a few years?
1: No, I really, I did that. I was over in New Zealand for you know, three years, and I knew I couldn't go back to the NBA. I wasn't healthy enough, and pretty much my playing was getting less and less. And then I knew my father was getting close to retiring. He was at Wisconsin as a head coach, and I said, you know what? I'm gonna go back to the States. I'll figure out what I really wanna do. I'm gonna just volunteer and be a volunteer manager, just because I knew it was getting close. I wanted to just finish maybe his last year with him. I, just, I sensed I wanted to do that. So that year I joined his staff, and I, it was a little bit too to see, well, do I wanna see this coaching thing? And they went to the Final Four that year. And then I was done. I remember like, oh my. And I'm like, well, geez, this is what coaching is. My first year in college, we go to the Final Four. I had no idea how hard it was. And, uh, but once I, I saw that, and I, and I saw, again, continue to see the relationship building, the, the intensity, the challenge. And then when you taste something like the Final Four, I just, I was captivated. And uh, that competitive part of it, and then seeing the other things
0: are what said, you know what, I, I believe I really want to do this. At what point did you decide to make defense so central to your teams? I mean, your teams are famously ferocious on defense, and I'm curious where that began and how do you persuade players that this is the right way to play? Because, you know, offense is pretty fun as well. Yeah, no, good question for sure.
1: You know, when I observed or played for my father or watched him, he always took programs that were the have-nots, really the bottom of the league when he took over, he always had to first figure out a way, how can we even just get competitive? What can we do to get competitive with our program and hopefully become successful? And you know, you watch even the pro sports. The the teams that advance that win championships, they do not do it without being very good defensively. And so that was one of the things I watched. My father just he poured himself into building a great defensive team and his teams all of a sudden became competitive and then successful. And when I took over for my father at Washington State, when I came to Virginia, I love the game. And of course, you have to be creative offensively and let guys go. But you have to have some things that are your non-negotiables or staples to give yourself a chance. And I thought that was a great equalizer in the game. And um, then you talk about recruiting. And the thing that I'd tell you about that is we're fifth in the country the most active current NBA players. We're fifth in the country. We've never had a five-star recruit here for us. There have been three stars, four stars, but they've learned how to play defense. They've learned how to be sound offensively. And then we have a saying: first comes discipline, then comes freedom. And we talk about that a lot in our program. You know, you gotta be able to do certain things well defensively, take care of the ball. But when you do that, then you're gonna have the freedom to expand your game and, and really push it. And I think that's why our guys are getting to the NBA and sticking. They're sound defensively. They, you know, they've been disciplined, and then that's what the teams want. There's only a couple of Lebrons and Jordans where they can come and do anything. So that's how you know you you sell it to your young guys. They all want to play and say, "We're gonna have a chance to win." It's gonna develop you for your pro career, and and there's probably more freedom than people realize in terms of you know offensively and the stuff we do.
0: Right. So your mention of discipline and then freedom reminds me of the five pillars that you use to guide your coaching and the development of your team. Can you talk a little bit about where they came from um, and how you use them? Yeah, uh, another great story. i talking about my father
1: a lot, but he's influenced me. He probably told me this maybe when I was in my 30s, because I asked him, I said, where did you get these? I knew they were biblical pillars and all that, and I lived them through playing for him. but he said, My faith was important to me and he said somehow I wanted my faith to play out in my vocation and what I did and you know he was always respectful and and I understand this is a public institution you think you have to be wise but he said I just studied the bible and said what would make a great basketball team what would make a great basketball player he just sort of went through and said humility man a player and a team that they know their identity. They don't think too highly of themselves, but man, they don't think too lowly of themselves. A team that is passionate, a team that's unified. And, and there's, regardless of what you believe, whether you have a faith, you don't, their character building, their life lessons, but they really are good. I, when I speak to some of the businesses and certain things, they can't get enough of those because it's team building. It's it's stuff that lasts. and And I just love how he discovered those, just kind of paging through stuff and thinking with his basketball mind. You know, I think everyone has to have some a foundation or non-negotiables, core values, and you have to not just have them as words on the wall. They got to be stuff you really believe in and you think they work. So that that's a long answer, but it's pretty cool how they they kind of uh,
0: developed. Yeah, I didn't realize they had come from your dad.
1: Yep, and a lot of pro teams, college teams. It's funny he's they'll use them, and you know they're, they suggest a different way for our young people. The the sports world, they say you know it's it's about me and that's how you're going to be good and this pillar of unity says it's about us and the pillar of servanthood you know the word of it entitlement well this is our brand we're entitled to it well this pillar of servanthood says the way to greatness is through serving others humility you know it's just those who exalt themselves will be humbled those who humble themselves will be exalted and it suggests a different way but these are positions of strength when those things are at the foundation you can't go wrong and then they apply to so many things. So I I love how they suggest a different way, but are very
0: sound. Right, so you mentioned success. I'm curious, how do you define success vis-a-vis individual players? That is to say, when someone graduates from UVA having been coached by Tony Bennett. What is your hope for them? What do you hope to see in them? And and how yeah. would you say, I really feel like I, I did my job? Yeah, well, we were talking
1: a little before, and this Prefontaine poster behind me says, to give anything less than your best is to sacrifice the gift. I look at each young person I I coach as incredibly gifted. They all have their gifts. And it's not just my job, it's our job to help them maximize their gifts in all areas. And I think it's the whole person. When a, a young man leaves, I when they come in, I look at them as all right, there's there's the physical part, you know, the, the basketball, the strength and conditioning developing every gift that they have physically. There's the the mental part, you know, just to help them mentally, academically pursue something they love, become educated at one of the world's greatest institutions, to to really advance and network and really help them mentally. And then there's the, you wanna say the character or the spiritual or whatever you wanna say, help them grow in who they are, who they become, what matters, those values that we talk about. Understanding those things, like if we've tried to pour into them and they understand those things and they've learned how to handle failure, they've learned how to handle, yes, success, and that's a hard one to handle too, but they've learned how to battle through adversity and stay true to what matters, uh, then I feel like that's a great measuring stick of success. Of course, we want them to go and play pro and win championships here, but the best compliment I can get is if you walk into our gym, you see, boy, they're competitive, boy, they're working. They're they're business-like in their approach, but there's still a spirit of joy in that gym. Whatever we do, Is it a spirit of joy in it while you're still intense while you're still pursuing excellence and is there hope in that environment and i think for these young people as you and i know with all the things coming at them it's different all the pressures if they can feel a sense of hope and joy and still be held accountable and challenged boy i think that's that's a good way to go
0: yeah i agree so speaking of pressures and a lot coming at players college athletics is in a period of intense uncertainty and change. As you know, think of the NIL, the changes to NIL and the changes to the transfer portal. Um, And I'm curious how you feel about the overall state of college athletics. Are you worried? Does it change the way that you coach or recruit? Do you think this is all going to settle out at some point? How do you feel about it all?
1: I wish I could answer that. (laughs) I don't know. Am I worried or concerned? Yeah, I think there are some concerns when you look at some data and stats about this, the transfers, how many young people are leaving. That, That's a concern. Um, the name, image, and likeness, you know, I'm for a lot of things in the way they're intended. But when things get stretched out of the realm, you can't stick your head in the sand and say, I'm not going to, we're going to do everything the same. You have to adjust. You have to. You have to be aware. You have to provide opportunities. And I think young people should have access, our athletes, to certain name, image, and likeness opportunities, things that are the way it's intended. But when it just becomes a negotiation, as some of the stories you're reading, it's it's getting out of hand. And I think there's certain situations where young people maybe need a uh, new scenery, maybe a change, they can get a waiver. But when instant gratification and in a young person can leave, I, I worry about that rule. This one-time transfer, I think, is a tough one. And I hope the name, image, and likeness stays the way it's intended. But there are some concerns. But I think it almost makes you double down on what matters in your program and recruit the right kind of guys that will certainly have those opportunities. But if that's their sole reason to come, to get as much name, image, and likeness, then I have to question if that's the right one. Maybe the pool has shrunk a little bit in who we can recruit, but we're going to find them and this is too good of a place and there's too good of things that are represented here to not want to come here.
0: Yeah, you really do have to hope that players can take a longer perspective. Um, and in some respects, it's the combination of NIL and the transfer opportunities that have to be pretty tempting for some student athletes who are, for whatever reason, not happy where they are. I'm glad that's the way you feel about it, but I wish you the best of luck in navigating it. So uh, I want to end with the lightning round of some questions. I'll start with an easy one that goes back to the very beginning. Um, so your favorite 95-year-old big band crooner. <laughs> <clears throat> Who would that be? The real Tony Bennett. <laughs> All right. How about the best moment of the epic 2019 national championship run? Well, I'll start with the
1: the most daunting moment when we were down 14 against Gardner-Webb or 16, and it looked like could there happen again. That was unbelievable. And once we handled that pressure, the rest was there. But there's so many, right? But I would say after we won it, in our locker room. Joe Harris, Malcolm Brogdon, all of our, uh, Justin Anderson, Devin Hall, uh, many of our former players, couple of my former coaches, all came in the locker room and I just remember all of us standing up and I said, put your arms around each other. I said, look each other in the eyes. And I said, how does this feel? And I said, but promise all of us, no matter what, we will never ever lose our humility from this and realize how much of a gift this was And just like we talked about, it was a painful gift to lose (laughs) to UMBC, but how much of a gift and how thankful we should be. And just that, just looking at each other and just, it was all done and there was this peace. And like, these are the guys we did it with and even some of the guys before who helped build it. And it was just one of the most satisfying moments along with when you get to embrace your, you know, the people that your family, your loved ones, your friends, um,
0: all that stuff. Yeah, Uh, it's an unforgettable run. Uh, is it true that you eat many Reese's peanut butter cups <laughs> <laughs> on the bus after? Whoa, whoa. How, do we, how do we get in this information here? <laughs> yes,
1: after a game, Ronnie Weidman, who's our chief of staff, he's unbelievable. He was a manager for my father at Washington State. Then when I took the job, he's been with me <laughs> for 20 years here. He has this little container, and you know he'll always, he sits right in front of me in the bus. Win or lose, he'll, he'll always, it's got my two favorite things, peanut M&M's unbelievable peanut m&ms that's and then uh the little i don't know some are the dark chocolate some are the milk chocolate mini ones and he'll uh he'll always hand them over the seat and i'll usually take you know three or four and i give them back and put them away because i can i can go through those those are like that's weakness to me that's kryptonite
0: All right. So you mentioned your chief of staff. I have a question for you from my chief of staff, (laughs) Margaret Grundy Noland. And she's curious about what is the earliest age at which you start looking at uh, basketball players as potential recruits? And I'm asking because she has a six month old (laughs) who is the 99th percentile of height. Well, that's good. If if there's a picture where a ball was put
1: in the crib, you know, at, you know, a minute or two minutes old, I'll I'll take a look. So that's that's pretty
0: solid. All right. Last question. Your unbiased prediction for the 2022-23 NCAA men's basketball season (laughs) and the national championship.
1: Oh, boy. Well, on paper, they'd probably say it'd be North Carolina. They got everyone coming back and uh, all that. Uh, I hope it's us. That'd be good. Right. (laughs) Um, It's so hard because and I'll tell you why it's hard. And this is not what you probably want it. But because of one time transfer. Name, image, and likeness. You don't know teams, it's how they form. We're going to Italy, so that'll be good. We got some new faces. Um, But I will say back to that 2019, that might have been the last where there was not name, image, and likeness. So players weren't negotiated for And I'll I'll always be thankful for that. But this one, I I think it's wide open. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, Well, Coach Bennett, (laughs) Thanks so much for spending time with me and for everyone listening. Uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your camp. I know how busy you are in the summer. uh, And so I appreciate you taking some time. Thank you.
1: And thanks for what you do for the university. You know, you talk about leadership. I always tell recruits, uh, if you get the people right, the rest takes care of itself. And, you know, to have Carla Williams, our athletic director, to have you as the president, people that you trust and, uh, you know, you've made some great changes and you've given us the freedom to do the things we need to do. So, I, I really appreciate being here. And this is a unique place. Yeah, it has its challenges, but it also has some wonderful things. So, uh, thank you for all you're doing.
0: Well, I appreciate that. And it it goes both ways. I think UVA is enormously benefited by the fact that we have really outstanding coaches and an outstanding athletic director. And it's not just that you don't have to worry about scandals and the like, which I don't worry about, but it's a really strong aspect of the university. It's a strength. Uh, It's more than just something that's neutral. And you are our ambassadors most often to the rest of the world. And you consistently put UVA in in a great light. So it's a a total pleasure being president of UVA in part because of the athletics teams.
1: Inside UVA is a production of WTJU 91.1 FM and the Office of the President at the University of Virginia. Inside UVA is produced by Mary Garner-McGee, Brooke Whitehurst, Matt Weber, and Nathan Moore. Our music is turning to you from Blue Dot Sessions. Listen and subscribe to Inside UVA in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back soon with another conversation about the life of the university.